Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Mr. Igor Vishnevesky, poet and novelist, giving a talk entitled The Essential Importance of the Epilogue in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Mr. Vishnevetsky's talk was part of the literature series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Thank you for this welcome. And it's, it's definitely a pleasure for me to speak to you. I spoke to part of the audience a little bit earlier, and I enjoyed our, uh, although rather brief, interaction. Uh, please feel free to ask me any questions after the lecture, which you may have. Today, tonight, actually, I will be talking about uh, the epilogue to crime and punishment, the probably most enigmatic part of the novel, the part of the novel most important for Dostoevsky, and also a part of the novel which is in itself a part of a larger tradition of very unusual I would say even open endings of the great Russian narratives. One of those narratives, and I was going to show you a picture because one of the gestures, one of the moves that Raskolnikov makes uh, in the epilogue uh, to Crime and Punishment, it's a, in a way a reversal of the move which the character of this novel makes. So one of the uh, narratives of that type uh, that has ending similar to Crime and Punishment is uh, Alexander Pushkin's uh, novel and verse uh, Eugene Onegin. It was composed in, uh, was composed between 1823 uh, and 1832, was published in its complete form in 1833. And Pushkin was, uh, together with Gogol, one of Dostoevsky's favorite Russian writers. And he always referred to Pushkin. At the end of this novel, we see uh, Eugene Onegin confessing his love to Tatiana. Raskolnikov is confessing his love to Sonia. But uh, uh, yes, to Tatiana, who now is married to uh, Onegin's uh, friend, General Gremin. We know from the previous narrative that Tatiana was and probably still is in love with Anegin. And this is a belated confession. Anegin kneels in front of Tatiana, but she says that I'm married to another man and I will remain faithful to him. Then Anegin's friend, General Gremin, enters the room. This is the ending of a novel. What kind of ending, you may ask? It's the beginning of a new story. But as I said, Russian literature has a tradition of endings like that. Another similar ending is the ending to an epilogue, actually, to War and Peace. And in this epilogue, I don't know how many of you have read this novel, but in this epilogue, we see two novel's main characters, Pierre Bezukhov and Natasha Rostova, happily married to each other. You should also keep in mind that Natasha is an ex-fiancé of Bezukhov's best friend, the third main character of the novel, Prince Andrei Balkonsky, who has been killed during the war with Napoleon. Uh, 
So Pierre marries his best friend's fiance. And the happiness seems to be well deserved. However, from Tolstoy's plans, and Tolstoy uh, publicized them after he completed this novel, we know that the entire construction of War and Peace was just an introduction, a prologue to a larger novel, which Tolstoy never completed, but he wanted to complete it, especially after he finished Anna Karenina. It's a novel where Pierre Bezukhov should have become a revolutionary and participate in the revolt of December 1825. Then, as a result of his direct involvement in this revolt, he should be uh, sentenced to hard labor in Siberia, and Natasha should follow him. In other words, the projected novel should be a narrative, a much larger narrative than War and Peace, about the history of Russian revolutionary movement. Tolstoy abandoned this project. Then we have the ending to another great Russian novel written at the beginning of the 20th century, 50 years after War and Peace, uh, was composed in 1912, 1913. The novel, you, you, may, you might have heard the title. It's Petersburg by Andrei Bely. The protagonist of this novel is a revolutionary. And uh, he almost killed his own father, who is an important government bureaucrat, because he almost carried the terrorist, the task that his own revolutionary party gave to him. But somehow his father survives this terrorist act, and the confused revolutionary retires to the countryside where he spends, where he dedicates all his time to uh, introspection and reading religious literature. You may ask what kind of ending is that? It's also a beginning of a new novel. Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, as I said, is very much a part of this tradition of epilogues, which are actually introductions to the new narrative. So what do we learn about Raskolnikov when we read epilogue and when we complete reading the novel? We know that Rodion Raskolnikov is a convicted ideological killer. And he is sentenced to hard labor in Siberia. A second class convict he finds himself on the banks of, I quote, a wide remote river, which is named a few pages later. It's uh, Irtysh River. And I was going to show you, unfortunately, technology failed us. I was going to show you a beautiful pre-revolutionary, early 20th century color photograph of Irtysh made by great Russian photographer uh, Prakudin Gorsky. But uh, believe me, I've been there. It's, 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 it's a river of stern beauty and great, great, I would say, might. Uh, in America, what river would be comparable? Mississippi? 
What else do we learn about Raskolnikov? That uh, his sentence that he fully uh, collaborated with uh, his investigator, Parfiri Petrovich, and with his judges, and his sentence uh, is more, I quote Dostoevsky, merciful than might have been expected. He killed two people. He got only five years of hard labor. Very much like Dostoevsky himself got. How many years before he wrote? 20 years before he wrote, 18 years before he wrote Crime and Punishment. We'll talk about that later. You should keep in mind that in Imperial Russia there was no capital punishment except for the cases which presented grave danger to the state. Those cases were political terrorism and armed rebellion against the state. Of course, criminal killings, they didn't con constitute grave danger to the state. What else do we know about Raskolnikov? That his actions were qualified as committed, I quote, in a state of temporal mental derangement. Although we know perfectly that he was absolutely sane when he committed his crimes. But here we have Dostoevsky's irony, which is quite apparent when he, uh, and this is a third person narrative, states that conclusion, this conclusion coincide, coincides happily with the latest fashionable theory of temporary insanity, which our contemporaries so often try to apply to various criminals. Then, the autobiographical element should be mentioned. You should keep in mind that Crime and Punishment, together with another novel uh, written by Dostoevsky, The Idiot, contain, contains, this novel contains, probably most confessional pages which Dostoevsky ever uh, wrote for, for his prose fiction. Dostoevsky himself, uh, when he was young, uh, but already was a writer of great promise, a writer with a spark of genius, was arrested, it happened in 1848, and uh, his only crime was that he was, together with other friends, interested in socialist ideas. How does it relate to Raskolnikov? We know that Raskolnikov killed old moneylender, pawnbroker, and also her sister, who was present at the, at the time uh, in the apartment. Uh, because he wanted to use the supposedly considerable amount of money that this old pawnbroker should have for the common good and because he didn't believe in private property. Private property should be redistributed. 
he also seriously believed that there was no higher authority above him and it was his own self and his own will that um, were the final, the ultimate authority, the ultimate judge of all of his actions. In other words, he was also an atheist. Young Dostoevsky, who was interested in socialist ideas but never, of course, supported violence of any sort, was also an atheist. He was arrested, it was 1848, the year of revolutions in Europe. The Russian government was uh, 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 probably too much afraid of a possibility, of even a remote possibility of something like what was uh, happening in Europe. And his, Dostoevsky's sentence was execution by firing squad. So he was brought to the place of the execution, but keep in mind, there was no capital punishment in Russia. At the very last moment, Dostoevsky and six other people who were about to be executed, they were mercifully, the, the sentence was mercifully changed to hard labor. One of those who were supposed to be executed never recovered mentally. Dostoevsky got an epilepsy as the result of that. So he spent next five years in the city of Omsk, where probably Raskolnikov is, on the banks over to Shriver. The view that Raskolnikov sees is exactly the same view Dostoevsky saw during his incarceration. Then we also learn that Sonia Marmeladova follows Raskolnikov to Siberia. She seems to be the only person who loves Rodion. Raskolnikov's mother is devastated by the fact that her son is a convicted killer, murderer, she plunges into insanity and dies. Finally, we learn that, yes, we learn that, it's not finally, it's before that, we learn that uh, inmates hate Raskolnikov. They even threaten to kill him the thing that stops them is that Raskolnikov doesn't care. And finally, Raskolnikov is seriously sick and has apocalyptic dreams of the world's near future. When he recovers, he learns that Sonia can, can no longer visit him because she is sick now. Everybody loves Sonia, but this is the first time that Raskolnikov realizes that probably he also has a feeling for her. When Sonia finally, she is not completely recovered from her sickness, is able to see Raskolnikov, she meets him on the bank of Artish River and guards, they pretend they don't see them together. 
And this is precisely the moment when Raskolnikov kneels and confesses his love to Sonia. On his return to prison, he opens the book that Sonia gave him a long ago and which he never opened before. And this book is a New Testament. This is the end of the novel. When and how often do we hear the author's voice in the epilogue? Well, the answer is not as simple as it seems. The epilogue, like the rest of the novel, is a third-person narrative, but we hear author's voice only, I would say only on two occasions in epilogue. There are the voices of other characters that are quite audible through this third-person narrative. Raskolnikov, or the voice of Raskolnikov, the voice of Sonia, the voice of Raskolnikov's mother, the voices of inmates. Third-person narrative is not always the case with mature prose of Dostoevsky, the prose that he composed after, his, uh, uh, after the time, after the sentence which he spent in Siberia. Notes from the underground, for example, and the adolescent are written as first-person narratives and owe much of the power to a skillful um, uh, presentation of the protagonist's minds. Russian philosopher and literary scholar Mikhail Bakhtin was the first to note that Dostoevsky usually gave voice to different con contrasting, often contradictory points of view. Uh, while he, as the author, stayed in the background, in the foreground of the narrative. And he would very rarely speak with his own voice. His role in the narrative, if we use this metaphor, uh, not the metaphor of a narrative, but the metaphor that I'm going to, to, to apply to this narrative, is very much like the role of a very skillful conductor of an orchestra who doesn't play any part in the orchestra, but who gives the direction and the general feeling and the general rhythm to the orchestra. In the epilogue, I think, author's voice can be heard only twice. It's the instance, the instance when Dostoevsky dis, dis, describes with irony those new theories that were applied to, to the trial, uh, the new theories of temporal insanity, although we know that Raskolnikov was perfectly sane. And at the very end of the book, one will learn that the, this is the beginning of a new story of the gradual renewal of a man, of his gradual regeneration, of his slow progress from one world to another, of how he learned to know uh, 
something that he didn't dream of. New reality. I'm sorry, new reality. Was this, uh, some, was it, this something, something unusual? Probably not. Dostoevsky um, uh, was not, in this regard, very different from, for example, Plato, who in his uh, prose always uh, uh, pretended to be just an observer of the real conversations between his friends. Uh, this observer who uh, just registered the insights and follies. Very rarely in the prose of Plato, we hear Plato's own voice. It's through the voices of the others, Socrates and others, that we learn his own ideas. And he does not always necessarily agree with what they say. Like Dostoevsky does not always necessarily agree. I remember, for example, when I was in high school, and it was in Russia, and we had to study crime and punishment, the closest friend of mine read crime and punishment from the point of view of Raskolnikov. And he read this book as a glorification of personal violence and uh, you know other things. But when you look at Dostoevsky, you should keep in mind this orchestra of different voices and the general direction Dostoevsky gives to those voices. I brought the name of Plato, but Dostoevsky was a writer of fiction. Well, yes and no. In his first letter that he wrote to his brother, and he was very, very close to his brother Mikhail, upon his release from prison in 1854, he asked his brother to send him to Siberia, not the money not the warm cloth, but books, including two books. One was Hegel's History of Philosophy, and he added, my entire future depends on this book. And Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. All those years that he was in captivity, he dreamed of re-reading those books. And strictly speaking, he didn't compose any philosophical treatises. What he did with the genre of prose fiction, with the genre of, of the novel, and he was writing novels, not philosophical treatises, he combined platonic type of dialogue with a with already existent genre of Western European novel. What, was West, what is Western European, classical Western European novel about? It's a novel, it's, it's a story of one's becoming, of protagonist's triumph over the circumstances or protagonist's failure. And there is always a significant moral dimension to this novel. But almost never European philosophical novel discusses 
philosophical questions that the characters of Dostoevsky formulate. So it's this Western European novel married to the genre of, of the Platonic dialogue. Sometimes it reads like the novels of Dostoevsky, since they should be entertaining, they sometimes read almost like pulp fiction. Or at the same time, they could, could read like uh, 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 like philo philosophical treatises. There was no other writer of fiction who influenced Western European philosophy that much. But of course, as the writer of fiction, he had most influence over his readers through by means of images, references, and symbols. Why don't we discuss some of the symbols that are present in the epilogue? One is the river. The river is always a borderline between two worlds. Raskolnikov sits on the bank of Irtysh River and he looks at the three steps on the other side with nomads there. And he understands that this very different life is not attainable for him. It's on the bank of the river on this border between two worlds. One world where he is not free in all senses, although he thinks he is the master of his own fate, but he is absolutely not free. And on this borderline between the world where he is not free and the world where he could be free, he confesses his love to Sonia. He repeats the gesture of Eugene Onegin, but he is loved back. It's there that he learns that probably he could be free in the future. And his sentence that seemed so horrible to him, horrible from moral point of view, not from physical point of view, he had to spend five more years with the people who hate him uh, in, in very, very bad circumstances, doing hard labor. It's there that he learns that he understands that it's only five years, and five years are nothing, as compared to future freedom. The other important element of the, in terms of images, symbols, and references, I spoke about references to Eugene Anyagin, uh, now, the other uh, important element of the epilogue is Raskolnikov's dream. He, in fact, looks into his subconscious in this dream. He looks into the mirror, which reflects veritable hell. This future is, in fact, what is inside Raskolnikov. And if people like Raskolnikov 
would act like Raskolnikov acted, this would be the real future of the Western civilization. Only after he understands that, he is finally able to do what he should have done long before. He opens up emotionally. He is no longer proud of his own supposedly right choices. He confesses his feelings to Sonia. Sonia's name is also symbolic. The full name should be Sophia. Sophia is wisdom, of course, in Greek. And his final gesture in front of Sonia at the end of the book, which is also very much reminiscent of a great painting that Dostoevsky should have seen in the, in the imperial collection, in the state hermitage collection, and which I was about to show you, but I'm sorry, again, technology fails us. It's uh, Rembrandt van Rijn's great painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So Raskolnikov kneels in front of Sonia, like the prodigal son kneels in front of his father. And Sonia, the embodiment of wisdom, becomes a true home of Raskolnikov's tortured mind, tortured, flawed, and prodigal mind. Many things in the epilogue, they have this symbolic dimension. Finally, his relationship with the inmates. You are a gentleman they say, you shouldn't have gone to work with an axe. It's not at all the thing for a gentleman. You are an atheist. You don't believe in God. We must kill you. And those are the words that he hears from other criminals. Why? Why do they hate him that much? Well, Raskolnikov is a killer, not because he is a killer, but because he had certain ideas that permitted him to kill other people. If those, if this scum could be eliminated from the face of earth, then it should be eliminated for the common good. Of course, for Dostoevsky, this position is not acceptable. The happiness of mankind in Dostoevsky, in the view of Dostoevsky, doesn't deserve one tear of a child. It's from another novel. Criminals, however, they know that they are criminals. Raskolnikov is absolutely sure that he is not a criminal. He just acts because he has those ideas. While criminals, they understand that they, they committed crimes and they are flawed humans. So they are on the way to the redemption. While Raskolnikov, the only 
the only regret that Raskolnikov initially has in prison, that he didn't commit suicide, that he didn't have enough stamina, enough motivation, enough determination to kill himself, like another character, he mentions this character, in the epilogue, Svidrigailov did. And who is Svidrigailov? He is a child molester, a rapist, and a monster. But at the same time, a very, very smart individual. At a certain point, Svidrigailov says that, well, like twins, well, like brothers, Radion Romanovich. He addresses Raskolnikov. And Raskolnikov keeps thinking of Svidrigailov in the epilogue. He does not understand that normal person should not even compare his actions to an actions of a monster. Svidrigailov, of course, is not a believer at all. And when he speaks of the future, he says that our future is a bathhouse full of spiders. This is a very, very horrible uh, image on the level of very, very prim primordial biological reactions that we may have. Uh, I probably should not comment much on this image. It speaks for itself. Only after Raskolnikov's looks into his own subconscious in his dream, after he opens up emotionally, he is probably capable to make another move and to finally cross this river that separates him, in symbolic sense, of course, uh, from his true freedom. It is also the moment when Raskolnikov realizes that everything he thought of himself might be wrong. This is the moment which makes crime and punishment a prologue, a true prologue, to a new, even more complex and exciting story. This is the moment when literature should yield to life, because no literature could tell the story. That's why the continuation of crime and punishment was never realized, never written. Like the, the story that Tolstoy wanted to write as a continuation of war and peace. For it is really through our own life experiences and actions that we may find real solutions to challenges that we as humans face. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.